0: As I've been emphasizing this season, the breadth and depth of San Francisco Ballet's repertory is extraordinary. And we've spent time with ballet masters, with dancers, with the music director, with the artistic director. And so it really seems appropriate that now it's time to go behind the scenes and talk about the technical aspects of our productions. Even if a ballet has no sets and the dancers are wearing leotard and tights the lights there are at least two light cues on and off and the curtain has to go up and the curtain has to come down fortunately and as you've probably observed uh, this season we've had any number of pieces that have what are known as high production values we have lavish sets fantastic lighting Elaborate, gorgeous costumes. And my guest this evening is just the one to offer insights into that aspect of this theatrical art form. So now I would like to welcome the ballet's technical director, Christopher Dennis.
1: Hello, everyone. Whoa.
0: <laughs> Very, yes. We always have to make sure that we're yes, feeding, the, feeding the podcast. Definitely. They can edit that out. Um, Chris, it's yes. a delight. This is a personal delight to me because we're just really getting acquainted.
1: We are, definitely. I'm getting acquainted to San Francisco, the company, and everyone who lives in the Bay Area.
0: <laughs> says, this is really your first season with San Francisco Ballet. It is. And what I really want to do, just in the interests of getting equated, is mm-hmm. to ask you to supply, in a sense, your own introduction. Mm-hmm. Give us a bio, give us um, kind of a sense of who the person is that then fills this position. How did you get here from okay. there? <laughs>
1: um, well, let me start off with, um, I am from Toronto, Canada. That is my birthplace and uh, where my home and um, a lot of my family is. And um, that's where I studied um, theatre production, uh, specifically uh, studied lighting design. Uh, that's really my major background. And, um, and throughout my time in Toronto, I've had the, the fortunate uh, opportunities to work with many of Canada's leading designers and, and stage crafts people, um, and so I've worked in places that you may be familiar with, like the Stratford Festival in Canada or the Shaw Festival in Canada, where I was um, a young assistant and designer in both of those places, uh, which then led me to uh, my appointment at the National Ballet of Canada, where I've spent four, 14 seasons as their lighting director and um, resident designer. So I have a, a, a great background in, in ballet specifically, um, all this started with me wanting to be an architect one day and uh, ended up in drama class and thought, oh, well, maybe I'll be a set designer and then went to school. And, you know, when you're in university, you're exposed to so many wonderful different things and lighting design started to uh, surface. And I was like, wow, this is really exciting. And um, and then one of the first jobs I did uh, back home was design. Uh, but one of my very first... Uh, ballet jobs was to be the technical director of a small dance troupe that toured uh, around the province of Ontario. So that's where I really started my career in dance as a technical director. And um, from that point on, just continued working professionally with other dance companies. Uh, And then after spending 14 seasons in Toronto, I was invited to the Metropolitan Opera uh, to be a part of their design staff, their lighting design staff. So I was there just last year, and that was a wonderful experience, and an opportunity presented itself here in San Francisco to, um, they were looking for a technical director with a strong uh, background in lighting and lighting design, and so the two, the combination of technical direction and design was something that was really appealing to me, and uh, I felt I could provide the kind of service and, and needs for the company, and I just said to my wife, how do you feel about moving to California? And she was like, great, we'll take the kids and we'll move. So <laughs> here, here I am. They're not here yet. They'll, they'll, they're, they're coming this summer. So I've spent the first season really getting acclimated to, A, the United States, B, San Francisco, you know, C, the company, my new job, my new surroundings, uh, but actually I did have the... Uh, wonderful experience of being here on a couple of occasions. Uh, Prior to my appointment in San Francisco, I was here for the 75th anniversary as a guest with the National Ballet of Canada. And then prior to that, I was here as a guest designer working with a a younger choreographer named Matash Murjewski. He uh, created a piece called Concordia, and when he was commissioned to do that piece, he asked me if I could come to San Francisco and design it. So, when I decided that this was the place that I wanted to work, San Francisco and the company, um, I was familiar with what I was getting into, so.
0: Wonderful. How's that, That's, that, that was a great arc. <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, um, so here you are. Your title is Technical Director. Now, I was looking at the program. And the production department is one of the longest lists of names Mm -hmm. in the staff. And Christopher Dennis, technical director, is bold. (laughs) And then there's this really long list of people who are managing this and managing that and supervising this. And I wonder if you could give us the, like, what's your job description? (laughs) And if when you're sitting in a staff meeting... Who are you, who's at your table? Um,
1: okay, well, my job description is the technical director. Um, as I, t- I say to a lot of people, it's like being a project manager. But the reason why my name is in bold is because I'm the person who is in charge or who runs the production department. So there are a lot of different names under uh, my name who are very uh, qualified and, and wonderful people who look after our sets, our costumes, our lighting, all the production values, our wigs, our makeup, everything you see on stage with the dancers, whether it's their costumes or the scenery and everything. And so I manage and look after the whole shoot and match with the, the help and advice uh, from the staff who, uh, I've inherited, <laughs> let's say. And so my job is ultimately to manage uh, manage the, the budget to ensure that artistic needs are being met uh, uh, for the creative things they want to do on stage and to be able to provide that on stage for them while uh, making sure we don't go over budget, making sure that um, artistically they're... They're happy, whether it's Helgi himself or whether it's the guest designers that we have. So when we do a new production as the technical director, I sit with the various designers and we go through their designs and I help implement with my team uh, or help realize their vision on stage uh, in various different ways. So that's pretty much what the technical director does. So it's
0: the designers, the... I know you probably work with, um, well, we've heard the company manager talk about working with something like 17 unions.
1: Yeah. I so I do so work with, heard. I work with the wardrobe union, the stage union, um, the stagehand union, union, uh, the wig and makeup union. So there are a number of different unions yeah. that I actually uh, work closely with to, to, to ensure our product gets on stage.
0: Right. Yeah. And and as you say wigs, makeup, costumes, yeah. props. Yeah. It's so all in your it, It's it's basic. all in
1: my domain at some point. At some point a piece of paper will cross my desk with a request uh, for uh, any purchases for any of these things or any type of any type of situation. And then of course as the technical director, I liaise closely with artistic and Helgi to keep them apprised of um, anything I foresee to be uh, a challenge in the nature of how the shows are being presented on stage. Because sometimes the artistic director will put a program order together um, because there are, artistically it has uh, a wonderful flow to the evening. Uh, but sometimes there are things technically uh, that we have to deal with that make the that evening a little more challenging, which could mean very long intermissions for, your, for yourselves who are waiting between pieces, and it's because we're trying to get things in order. So sometimes I will request, it would be really nice if we did this ballet first as opposed to this one, because it would allow us the opportunity to make sure it's gonna be presented the way it needs to be done without feeling rushed. So as a technical director, I, I bring the checks and balances to the, I'd say the checks and balances to the artistic staff because you know they'll ask for everything and <laughs> and as they should, and I just will say well we could do that or you know the answer won't be no but I'll always let everybody know here here are the consequences or here's what it means if we choose to do this and that gives them the information so they can then figure out, well, maybe we won't do that, we'll do this. Or maybe they just won't listen and they'll do it anyhow. And, and it could be a wonderful thing, but it's really to bring the checks and balances uh, in the most you know, uh, collaborative way, uh, not kind of a dictatorship in any way. So my job is to, to really help look at those things.
0: We've got um, some slides. It's you me. might even be able to see them in the <laughs> mirror down there. Um, of this particular program seven and I thought uh, one way of doing a little introduction for our audience to this program would be to look at them and get you to make comments about some of the technical aspects the challenges it's a particularly interesting I mean to my eyes it was a very interesting program technically
1: it is it um, is definitely
0: so we start with the wonderful um, 100-year-old Petrushka. And I'm just going to start by saying, of course, the ballet was originally um, staged for Vaslav Nijinsky in 1911. Um, and here we are in 2011. And we actually did, it, uh, did a revival of it last year um, with Pascal, one of our Petrushkas. Um, That's a pretty good picture. There's one coming up that... Extraordinary costumes. That's the one I wanted to stop on. Sure. Um, I never saw the rabbits. (laughs) I saw the production several times last year and this year, and this is the first time I noticed that there were rabbits. Um, This seems like um, when it was produced in 1911... It was gangbusters, technically.
1: Oh, I would imagine it was gangbusters uh, visually, um, specifically um, because of the bold color that was used to help portray. Everything's extremely colorful, and uh, uh, so I would imagine uh, it was a little shocking in its presentation at first. Um, But I don't know enough history as to um, how it was received, Um, but I know when... Uh, I've had the uh, the ability or the fortune to design the lighting for the same production in Toronto. So one of the interesting things about Petrushka and the Fokine estate is that if you're Ballet X and you wanted to do this production, you would have to rent the exact same sets and costumes. And so wherever it's done around the world, provided it's based on the Fokin, um production, uh, this is exactly what you'd see from... Different theater you would see in different theaters around the world, and there's this set is from the Birmingham Ballet, and I think there are some costumes from the Joffrey because not as far as I know th- there is no one company that owns uh, all the co- sets and costumes, so it was uh, an exercise in making sure we can get uh, the right period costumes to go with the set. Because if you notice, there's a lot of um, what we refer to as supers or extras on stage to help fill out the crowd scenes. And so um, the costumes for all the individuals back there are, um, you know, there are some Nutcracker costumes that some people are wearing. Now that's a bit of information that you have to keep to yourself. (laughs) But, But that's kind of some of what we have to do in order to help you know, fill out um, the, the amount of people on stage because it takes place in the winter and, you know, so there were costumes uh, that needed to be rented or borrowed from other productions for the various types of people who we've engaged or who have volunteered their time to be on stage, whereas the main characters have been designed specifically for the ballet. And so those costumes will travel with the set. Um, so Petrushka is one of those shows where, as as a um, from a production point of view, we'll have to um, we'd have to improvise for the children and all the other things because every city it's performed in, there'll be various sizes of children and adults. So I think a lot of companies would just um, go to their resources to help uh, fill out everything. So
0: yeah. Wow. Um, are there? I was just—that's a moment when mm-hmm. Petrushka, the puppet on uh-huh. the right, um, just suddenly breaks through the wall. Yeah. Um, are there any particular secrets or challenges to the kind of set that has little trapdoors in it like that?
1: No. I mean, the the wonderful thing about this particular set is that it's traditional in its construction. I mean, they're true theater flats that are all put together um, with. Um, with rope and uh, and the guys just they they take the rope and they do this little trick with their hands and the rope connects onto these metal um, uh, what do I call them again? They're just the, the, these metal fastenings which allow the scenery to um, connect together. Like if you're backstage watching them put it together, it's very uh, I want to say old school traditional theater type technology that that we use. So it's very endearing because our, our stagehands range in age, and so some of the senior guys are like, move over young guy, let me show you how to do this stuff, because some of the guys on our crew are more familiar with the technology, but this particular show goes way back to this is how it was done back in the day. And so when you look at the production uh, up close you look you look at it and go oh my god this thing looks like it needs to be tossed because it's so old but that's kind of the beauty of it and so when you look at it um, on stage you're like you guys from the audience perspective wouldn't notice that but when you when you do go up close you actually look at the craftsmanship in the painting and in the woodwork uh, and then the building of it and so that's that's what's exciting about doing some of these older productions. It, it can be a bit of a pain because it's like, oh, look, it's like it's falling apart. So we do what we can to ensure that you know it's safe and secure. Uh, but it is traditional in its in its construction. So we'll have like in this particular scene, um, the main cur- the ghost drop comes in, which allows the carpenters to then set up the cell scenes for each one of the um, dances and they're literally gripping it. Like There's like four or five guys on either flat just lifting it up, and the flats are at least a good 15 to 18 feet tall, so you're just at the bottom lifting this very tall flat. Nowadays, we put wheels on things, so this particular scenery goes back to, you know, traditional sort of strength and, and all those kinds of things that it's really interesting to watch backstage. And they do it in the dark, too, so that's even, you know, mm-hmm
0: be worth just a behind-the-scenes charge money and be a fundraiser. And um, Let's move on to the um, next piece on this program is a revival or an encore from last year. Um, Renato Zanella choreographed the Schoenberg um, Transfigured Night. Um, incredible score. And this is a piece um, we kind of struggled to find a. A photo that actually showed the set piece, which um, I think is just a dramatic contrast to the Petrushka set piece because we're going to try and obviously, you've got very contemporary looking um, dressing for the dancers. Um, you're looking at Sofiane Silva, who um, is the sort of the main lead character. Um, Now you're going to be able to just see the Mm -hmm. set piece. Can you kind of see the X's? How many of you have actually seen Mm -hmm. the production? So some of you do know what we're talking about. It's... um, Well, maybe I'll let you just kind of describe it. Yeah, sure. I mean, this
1: particular production, of course, is extremely contemporary, and it's almost this whole different world, uh, abstract world. And uh, with the set specifically, um, it is... You know, it's designed to, um, as you know, towards the end of the ballet, um, these, we refer to them as the sticks, but they, they start in this configuration, but towards the end of the ballet, over the course of two minutes, they, they slowly all, with the exception of one, they slowly all just, uh, move into places where they all become parallel to one another. So they're just straight up and down. And so, um... Putting this particular production is even though it has very little scenery, is actually more challenging and frustrating than putting together Petrushka, which is full of scenery um, and it 's just it 's the nature of how the show was designed and the technology that we 're using in order to to do it the The room for error is very slight, and so um, it gets it gets us backstage a little nervous about things because we 're like. You know, the room for error is it, it isn't there. not
0: theres <laughs> this uh, the movement done electronically, or is it done manually?
1: It is done uh, through a um, uh, what we call a. Yeah, it's not manual. It's it's um, motor driven. Is what I that's the word I was looking for. So some of our our, our line sets where we hang scenery, some of them can be operated manually by what we refer to as the flyman because he's flying the scenery up and down. But in this particular case, because of how slow it needed to move, it, it would never be consistent or the same if we had um, the guys pulling the rope over the course of two minutes to maintain the right speed consistently. So we then assign, we then assign uh, specific uh, battens that lift the actual um, sticks Uh, we assign them to motorized uh, line sets where we can program the timing and um, once we're ready to go, they just hit the go button and it all happens through automation itself which then allows for uh, more consistent uh, results and also maintains the speed because we can control the speed at which we want to do it. So sometimes uh, technically um, we use computers to help us in our programming of, whether it be lighting or scenery, so we have uh, smooth transitions, consistency and timing. But then there's something nice about when you do it manually because that's also um, part of the craft of being uh, a stagehand where you know they're doing it by hand, so there takes a certain level of um, of knowledge and skill to do certain things like that. These are extremely heavy, so, even more reason why it's on a motorized system to help lift them up throughout the piece over the course of two minutes.
0: So. Let me see if we've got any, not really, but just a, a little bit more over there in the left corner. It's, it's a, a very, different angle.
1: I mean, as you could tell, it, it, it's a very dark, um, moody ballet. I mean, I know some of the dancers uh, find it a little challenging to dance in the light sometimes, um, but it's what really helps tell the story, and that's what's important, and that's what the design team does, is really help support what the choreographer is trying to, um, trying to, to display, and so design is there to help evoke all of that feeling uh, that the dance is trying to uh, engage us all in.
0: The last piece on this program couldn't be more different. <laughs> um, this is Christopher Wilden's uh, world premiere this season. Uh, he has used music of Michael Torque, which is um, kind of postmodern. Um, it's very consonant. It's very listenable. Uh, I think I've heard someone say it was post-minimalist. Um, nevertheless, if, it's... If you,
1: if, I don't know if you are familiar with the work Terra Firma that uh, James Cadelka did for San Francisco Ballet some years ago. You anyway, know, the music of terra firma is also uh composed by Michael Torkey, yeah. So he's done a fair amount of yeah. different it's things. very danceable. It's very yeah, danceable, yeah. definitely.
0: Well so here we are. Um this is not dark.
1: No, it's not.
0: Um and what are some of the fun things technically about this piece? Um,
1: well, this is like a, a box of crayola crayons that just like went wow in the air, you know what I mean? Like because it's all about color. Um it's definitely all about color. So one of the things that was really fun, but also challenging for, I would say, the lighting designer, is to, to make sure that the color of the costumes were reading in their true form, because sometimes lighting has a way of distorting the color. And um, Holly Hines um, used some extremely bold colors, and Christopher wanted to make a statement with color. So if you have seen this production, you know the backdrop changes color uh, a lot. Uh, Chris requested a blue floor. Um, we own a number of different color floors. We primarily dance on a black floor or a gray floor, but we do have a white floor like what we use in Chroma, if, you ha- if you've seen Chroma. Um, and so he said he wanted a blue floor. And so the company owns a blue floor that we use in our Sleeping Beauty. So when I showed it a, a sample of the blue floor, he said, no, I don't want that blue. And I was like... <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> he goes, no, I'm looking for something a little more electric. And I went, oh. So, you know, I one 800 floors are us And um, I said, I'm looking for something that's, you know, like this. And so there are manufacturers of, of, of dance floor for studios and for stage. And they do come in various colors. So um, I found a particular blue floor that uh, really was... His only other choice <laughs> so that 's where I come in and say, "Here it is there 's nothing else, so you either go with this one or you go with the one I showed you originally, and as soon as he saw it, he was just like perfect right so for me, that was a good thing. Do you know what I mean uh, but what 's really great is that floor is reversible, so on the other side of the floor it 's like bold red, so when so when Christopher was here, I said, "You know, when you come back next time,
0: <laughs> we got I, a red I can floor. give you a red floor."
1: Yeah. So he just laughed at that. Let's just um, go back so, to these; they're so great. So, um, so the one major piece of technology that we actually rented for this production were um, we used automated lighting, and we used it because um, it allowed for a. a a great deal of flexibility with color and so the automated lighting is actually behind the uh, what we call the psych and there are four of these giant units that are positioned and focused and you can program uh, and mix colors to your delight like I mean the sky's the limit like the, your only limitation one of my favorite saying is your only limitation is your imagination so the the sky was the world for her and so ML was, uh, Mary Louise was uh, very happy and because it allowed her to uh, mix and pick colors that would complement in different ways um, the costumes on stage so um, so it was uh, it was, uh, it was a little expensive for the technology but it was the right piece of equipment to do the job so Once again, as a technical director, I need to look at those things. Because she said, well, I need to create these sheets of color. And I knew that in our existing lighting inventory, we didn't have anything like that. So one of the things that we did was we called a uh, supplier of lighting equipment and said, you know, here's a time for uh, the company to, to do a little show and tell with us. Show us the latest and greatest on the market. And so this company from L.A. uh, flew out here and shipped a whole bunch of different equipment. And we did, like, a real kind of dog and pony show, and he was just like, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. And then, so collectively, uh, we just said, okay, that's no good, that's no good, that's what we want. And so that's what we ended up using for the particular production. So sometimes, um, as we're preparing for these productions, sometimes we have to do a little uh, show-and-tell Uh, and tests with different fabrics or lighting to make sure that what we're trying to do is going to work. Because when we get into the actual technical schedule, we have such limited time to get it ready from a technical point of view because the dancers need to get on stage to rehearse it. And so we need to be able to make sure that our end is together so by the time they get on stage, everything's happening cohesively. And so... Um, it's important from the production point of view to do our homework based on the requirements of the different artistic teams with the choreographer and the designers. And sometimes they'll say, well, I want this and I want this, and then you give it to them, and then we get to the point where we're te- we're, we're actually using it now, and then go, oh, you know, I just don't like that anymore. <laughs> and you just, you just kind of go, okay, well, um, that just cost us a lot of money. <laughs> well, we'll just move that aside, but that's part of the creative process with us. So, you know, at the end of the day, you just, you want to ensure that we want to ensure that we're giving um, our creative teams and artistic um, the tools that are needed in order to create the wonderful things you see on stage.
0: So, Well, you've talked about um, bringing this particular bit of equipment in. Um, We have a bunch of pictures that I'm about to turn to uh, that just kind of from the season that just would give us an opportunity to talk about the soup to nuts of challenges and technical stuff but before we do that tell us a little bit about this incredible i get i'd want to say instrument it's the opera house oh, sure. and just what is it that you're working with
1: oh uh, well you know the opera house as many of you know you've been there many times and i mean it's truly a wonderful facility i mean it it's a, it's a very old opera house, but it's beautiful in its, in its architecture and it's, uh, just, it's just being there. I mean, the first time I walked into the theater, I was like, wow, this is beautiful. Uh, there were the seats, everything, the balcony. Uh, backstage uh, is, is big, and I know that, I guess it was after the restoration of the opera house, they expanded a particular part of the stage. Uh, to allow for more room for uh, all the technical things that need to happen, uh, primarily all the scenery, which which helps us, but is probably even more important for the opera because of the s- scope and scale of their scenery compared to ours. Um, but in general, I mean, it's a, it's a fabulous building, and we're actually in the process of putting in a new um, system to allow for what we call power flying. It's an automated system that will allow um, to do even more wonderful things scenically between the two companies. Um, And so it's, I mean, it's, San Francisco's lucky to have a world-class opera house at the end of the day. You know, there are a lot of cities who just have very small theaters, but when you come here, there's a world-renowned opera house that, you know, sounds great, looks great. So I'm very excited to be a part of this space. Well,
0: let's look at some of these pieces. Um, starting with this one, which you might remember from early in the season, Raku, which was choreographed by um, Yuri Posikov. I believe you actually are the... I, I designed the lighting ...light for the designer on the program. Um, that was an extraordinary piece. Um, all of this, the scenic effects were very abstract. Yeah. But you, you created a lot of them just with light.
1: Well, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful collaboration between uh, myself and uh, Alex Nichols, who was the uh, set and projection designer. And Yuri was very clear about having imagery um, for this show that, reflect, that reflected the nature of the ballet. Uh, he referred to it as the movie. He goes, I want to see movie, movie. So w- that's what we created was ultimately this movie for him. Um, that That complemented uh the music as well as the choreography, so Alex and I worked extremely close in the imagery uh and how both the projection of of scenery and how lighting work well together and It was a real collaboration because um his projections had to be manipulated in a way that was. Uh, w- would allow you guys to see the images. And I had to make sure that when I was lighting the stage that I wasn't washing out the imagery. So it was a real collaboration of, you know, is this too much light or is this not enough light? Because And the other part of the whole process was making sure that the imagery wasn't overpowering the dancing because at the end of the day, it's all about the choreography and the dance. And so uh, the imagery and the lighting and the costumes uh, just all needed to complement everything that Yuri was creating choreographically. No one, no one element should have overpowered the other. And so that takes a, a, that takes experience. It also takes a a good team of collaborators. So nobody felt like their part of the job wasn't being seen in the way it was intended. So we were able to, uh, we were able to work really well together. And I think that's why we were successful and in, in how the production uh, ended up on stage.
0: I feel as though the art of using projections is a kind of a this-generation way of creating well, it, it production is a, values.
1: It's, it's another tool that as we move along into the wonderful world of whatever you want to call it, <laughs> you know, here we are in 2011, and as we continue to move into the future, you know, there is always going to be different kinds of technology that will allow us to present art on stage differently. And so um, some people uh, think it's the way to go because it could be cheaper. Oh, you're just projecting imagery. But the imagery still has to be created and there's a lot of time that's placed into figuring out where the projectors go and, um, and how, how it's going to impact everything and especially when we're a company who has to tour doing a production like this works perfectly here but I need to ensure that it's gonna work everywhere we go so when you use projectors it it changes how we work uh, specifically with time the more technology you use in your productions the more chance of the technology failing so even though for a lot of uh, artistic types they say oh why don't we just use projection that'd be great Uh, yes and no and so it's not always the best answer, but, it's a, but it is a tool that can really help create some wonderful things.
0: Um, this is uh, Helgi's premiere this year, uh, mm-hmm. TRIO. Mm-hmm. And this was, I just remember visually it was stunning. Um, what, was the, what was your objective in lighting this one?
1: Well, once again, uh, when Helgi and I had a conversation um, with TRIO, Uh, Because the music's Tchaikovsky's Souvenir de Florence, he felt there needed to be a a strong visual presence um, as a backdrop. And he thought um, because of the souvenir, we needed an image that you could remember but wasn't quite clear. But it was something, you know, you had to kind of figure out in a way or, or just try to remember. And so he said to me, he goes, what do you think about projection? And I said, I don't believe that projection will support the ballet the way he envisioned. Um, and so that's where I have to use my level of expertise, uh, and, and let him know why I don't think it's a good idea and that I will work with somebody to find a better solution that will support your ballet. And so we came up with, uh, once again, Alex Nichols is the set designer, um, we all met and we discussed imagery. And Helgi had this whole thought about he he envisioned a ballroom or a palace. And so we found imagery that we then manipulated to um, give the palace a different look and a different feel. So when you looked at it from afar, you could make it out, but it was deconstructed. So it was broken up. So you couldn't make it up right away. You couldn't make it out right away. And um, and I knew it was something that he was going to like but it was going to be something that he also needed to get comfortable with so as the technical director i had the scene shop mock up a portion of what i of what this was going to look like and then i put it in helgi's office and i said just leave it here for a week and just marinate on it for a while you know just let it sink into you and and then you know which was a great exercise because then a week later we all came back and Oh, I forgot to mention, I had two samples of what the set could look like. And by leaving it in front of his desk, it gave him the opportunity to really kind of say, oh, I think I like this. Oh, no, I think I like that. And so when we had our next meeting, he um, he could then describe what it was he felt was really good or not so good about it, which then helps us. So the more visual representation we can give... Um, directors or collaborators, the better it helps us as designers uh, give them what they want. Because some people just don't know how to articulate what it is they're after. So from a creative point of view, whether it's a TD or a designer, we spend a lot of time coming up with imagery and, and things for them to go, is this what you're talking about? No. How about this? You know, how about this? So we use a lot of art books, just a lot of inspiration because they'll use certain words or won't come up with the right words, and so we're having to read minds a little bit.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's a totally different subject. Um, One of the fun things about... I hope you've all seen San Francisco Ballet's recent production of The Nutcracker. Um, This is the opening party scene. Um, I don't know about this particular production, but I know that the previous production had more... Cues in the first scene than any other ballet in the entire repertoire. Um,
1: I, I don't know enough about the previous production because um, that was prior to my arrival. But I know this production has its fair share of of cues, whether it's lighting cues or or, or carpent, carpenter cues, where scenery has to move or prop cues. There's it's quite a busy show because it, you know it's the transformation, you know from from this room into uh, this giant where everything just explodes and becomes bigger than life, so uh, just to go from here to there is you know, there's a lot of cues involved, so I mean if you could uh, unfortunately you don't have the the opportunity to listen in on headset when the stage managers are calling the lighting cues and the, the carpenter cues and the fly cues to make it all go together seamlessly and magically. Uh, it's actually quite extraordinary and, uh, and very well rehearsed.
0: Yeah. I just, I just know, having been backstage yeah. at Nutcrackers, to just, it's amazing, because there's something happening every 15 seconds for the whole half hour of the first act. Um, this has, I have heard people say they have never seen this much snowfall on stage. Um, I, in any I'm from other Canada,
1: and there's not this much snow that falls. <laughs> I tell those guys on stage all the time, I go, it doesn't even snow like that in Canada, so I don't know where your ideas of snow are coming from.
0: It's the magic of theater. But it's
1: the magic of theater, and to be honest, my understanding is Helgi loves when he sees this much snow. So <laughs> I'm like, well, if that's what he wants, then so that's what it, we'll do.
0: <laughs> so is it, is it giving anything away to say, how does that happen? How no, do you get that I, much snow?
1: No, I mean... The snow is is, I mean, think of like hole punched paper, I mean, and just think of boxes or gallons of hole punched paper, I mean, that's ultimately what, what it is. And um, and then up above in the in the fly gallery, what we have is called a snowbag, and uh, the snowbag is operated with uh, by two line sets, and one set is is kept still, and the other set is what we call the working set. And the snow bag has a bunch of holes, you know, all along the bag. And then so what happens is the the operators just, they pull on the line set, and they they lower the side of the holes down, so that way the snow can roll through all the holes and fall down, and then they lift it back up, and then they roll it back. So they go up and down, up and down, which then allows for the continuation of snow to to fall throughout the the whole production. And so they can control the speed of it. So at one point, it starts off very light. And then t- by the end of the dance, it's like a blizzard on stage, basically. Great. And the dancers are just like, oh, here we go. And, you know, they come off stage and they're like, oh. they've got all this snow all over them because, unfortunately, it doesn't melt. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And then you know, because uh, I've been told uh, San Francisco is very green, uh, and the company is green, the snow gets recycled, so there's a big sifter in uh, there's a big s- snow sifter that we have backstage, and so after it all gets broomed up and everything like that, it goes through the sifter to to ensure that anything uh, any kind of hairpins or anything like that that may have fallen off the dancers um, oh, right. will we'll get cleaned out so we can reuse the snow again. So.
0: Amazing. Um, this is a piece that has some pretty high production values. We didn't um, you might not even recognize this, this is Little Mermaid. Um, the underwater sequences in Little Mermaid are probably the most absolutely stunning production wise. Um, Is there anything in Mermaid now, you weren't here last year. I was not here
1: last year, so, um, but what's wonderful about that is because I wasn't here last year, I'm having to learn the ballet um, from a technical point of view, so I'm looking at notes. So there's a lot that I don't know about the ballet, Uh except I've watched it on DVD. Um, And um, so when, so for me as a technical director, when a ballet is, that I'm not familiar with, um, when it comes to our company, I would do a lot of research and homework about the ballet and ask questions to those who have done it before. And because we have a lot of staff who have done it before, I'm relying on the information and the notes that they've taken because what we do is we do archive and document all our notes because uh, you'll never know when the artistic director says, you know that ballet we did 10 years ago? I'm thinking of doing it again. So there's kind of this thing backstage. If, if you document it... Uh, chances are it'll never come back. <laughs> if you don't document it, you'll see it next year for sure. So the rule of thumb is just document everything because you just never know when artistic decides, you know what, I'd like to bring that ballet back again. And so uh, for me, I'm just going through the notes that are there and, um, and I'm really relying on the staff that we have to put it back together again. And, uh, and then I will see it firsthand at that time
0: be interesting now to uh have a pair of fresh eyes on it too
1: yeah right? oh I no definitely can, and john yeah. newmeyer will be back ah. for um for this uh and he's definitely the eyes and ears of the production but definitely uh with with me being yeah, here now yeah. i mean there is a, another fresh set of eyes and and i'll look for anything that looks strange or weird mm-hmm. and if something doesn't look right i'll just ask and somebody might say no it's always like that and I'll go. Really? Are you sure? And <laughs> yeah,
0: it's supposed to be know. strange and weird. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be.
1: So, uh, you know, but it, it's a wonderful production, as far as I know. Oh, we've got. There's a lot of makeup that's used in this production, so uh, that's a big part of uh, what's going to happen. I, it's probably the biggest makeup budget we we use during the season because of the nature of the type of make the body makeup that gets used on the dancers, mm-hmm. and the time that it takes to. Get them into that particular makeup for the production, so
0: well, I'm kind of looking at the time, so we're going to keep moving. Yeah. Um, this is Giselle: Pretty straightforward. This is Giselle. Mm-hmm. Giselle has a lot going on. Um, I'm going to go to the next picture, which is pretty funny.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: but can you tell us what's going on here?
1: Yes. This is the the levitation of one of the... No. (laughs) This is one of our dancers who uh, is one of the willies in Act 2 and is being hoisted up on what we call our flying rig. And if you notice at the very top of of the ballet, uh, when Hilarion is walking through the forest, uh, you know, the willies, who are these ghostly uh, women who've been rejected... Uh, fly through the air and so uh, this particular dancer is getting hoisted up in the air. Either she's getting hoisted or she's coming off. I think she's getting hoisted up ready to uh, be flown across the stage basically. So what you're seeing is just uh, the side view of her uh, or it's, I guess it's her back uh, getting ready to go on stage for her, uh, her flying entrance.
0: You might be tempted to think that this is a newfangled idea. And the fact of the matter is that in the original production of Giselle, which was 1841, they had flying willies. Yeah,
1: they did. But what's interesting about this production of Giselle, because I've done other productions, uh, in other productions, the willies at the very beginning don't fly. I mean, they bore across the stage or they make these other entrances. So I think it depends on the staging of the ballet and who staged the particular ballet and the effects that they want to help create uh, and to help tell the story. So it's pretty magical to see this willy flying across the sky. But it works really well, too, when you see them appear out of the middle of nowhere and just kind of scoot across the stage. So, I mean, there's a little more bang for your buck, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it really depends on who's staging yeah. the production.
0: Well, Sort uh, of a historical... Yeah. verisimilitude here with it is. having it is. them actually flying and that they had the technology which hasn't changed all that much. No I
1: mean it is, it is pretty straightforward technology um, the company that we use is called uh, Flying by Foy and they've been around forever they're a, v- a Las Vegas company and you know they've been doing flying like David Copperfield and all these um, people you've seen on TV and, and, and film and stuff like that they're, they're legends in their own way um,
0: Didn't didn't, uh, Foy get started with Mary Martin and Peter Pan? um,
1: Yes. I think that's the story. Yeah. 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 So they've been around a long time. in the 1950s. Yeah. They've been around a long time, and so that's who we've used because they're certified and they're good at what they do. So when we do this particular production, we have to fly one of their – I'll use the word engineer uh, from Vegas who supervises and ensures that our staff – is in compliance with all the safety regulations and uh, and the equipment that they actually do send us that we understand how it works so that way the dancers are always safe mm-hmm. during the flying.
0: Just one more thing you have to think Just about. Just <laughs> one
1: other thing that we have to look after.
0: This is, I think this is our last picture. This is, this is um, um, program six, which you will we will be talking more about next week, but which some of you may have already seen because of the way things are situated over this couple of weeks. Um, this is Ghosts. And this is the most amazing set piece. Um, it, it's just, you know, I can't decide if it's outer space or or underwater or well, what it's supposed to be. Well, I think that's the beauty of the whole thing. Yeah. It's
1: really up to you to decide. and 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 it's so abstract in its nature. I mean, someone said... She created a boat, and then she broke it, right? Like, she just threw it or something like that, and then it all cracked and created these interesting shapes because for some, it is this underwater feeling, and so um, I wasn't here when the piece was originally created, so uh, I don't have the firsthand information from the designer as to the intent of the actual uh, piece, but it's it's very sculptural and uh, and it's very unique and it lends itself really well to Christopher's choreography.
0: And it moves. And it does. And it moves. it how it is mo- it, How does it move?
1: Well, in this particular case, like in Underskin, everything was automated and needed to move within a certain time period. Um, this is all done manually. So we have a number of different guys on the fly system that are given cues by the stage manager and they just pull the ropes and they... They manipulate it like they have a point to get to by a certain, by a certain part of the music. And so um, the stage manager guides them and, and they all just do it. So when you see this moving, this is done manually. So you're actually seeing more of the, more of the, um, the handiwork of, of the stage hands as opposed to an underskin where it's button, push, and it all just goes together. This is them actually doing it themselves. So it's pretty exciting too. To watch all of these guys huddled up together because it's all within, um, they're all within, like, I'd say three to four feet of one another, all holding onto a separate rope, ready to pull to the next. Uh, position. Yeah. So, it's kind of cool to watch. There's
0: as much going on behind the scenes as there is, <laughs> there is within the proscenium. There is.
1: There's a lot of choreography that goes on yeah. during the intermissions, and the choreography is just between lighting, props, and scenery. You know, we got to get the floor down, then we got to get the set in place, then we got to focus the light. And it all has to happen in a specific way, uh, or else it just derails the, the, the time that it takes to set up. And then, of course, in every setup that we do during the intermission, I mean, a light bulb could go out. or I mean, there's a number of different things that can happen, but we try to ensure that it's all good. So just rest assured when that curtain comes down and you're having a cocktail and you're going, wow, it's been a while, uh, it's probably because we're still working on something that may have malfunctioned or something, and we want to ensure that it's safe and correct and working properly before the curtain goes up because once it goes up, you know, we don't want the dancers to be unsafe, and we want to make sure you guys are getting a, a, value, a good value. <laughs> good
0: value. We've saved just a couple minutes for questions. I know there were probably millions we could ask. Does somebody have a question? I see so many hands. Um, let's, I, back way back, yours was the first hand that went up. You, Yeah, red sweater. Yeah.
1: No, I mean... Let's repeat the question. uh, Well, the question is um, there was concern of whether the dancers would slip on the snow, but more importantly (laughs) how do you pick up the snow? Do we vacuum it or whatever? And so uh, what's really interesting is to watch, you know, six grown men sweeping away. Like, I'm sure these guys don't even do that at home, but here they are backstage (laughs) and they're sweeping and mopping the stage and I'm like, I know you don't do that at home. But anyways, we just, we literally sweep it all up and and we shovel it like there's a shovel shoveling the snow, and I'm laughing because I'm going, <laughs> it's just so funny because we have real shovels back there, picking up this fake snow and putting it into barrels. So it literally just gets swept up.
0: So wow, um, yours, yeah.
1: Probably I would say a good the, year. The oh, questions. sorry. Yeah. The yeah. question is, how far in advance do we plan? For our ballets, is that really the question? Yeah, so technically we would plan uh, anywhere from a year, uh, maybe a year and a half, depending on the nature of the ballet, but easily a year. We'd be, you know, I already know what's starting to happen for some of next year's productions. So.
0: Over here, yeah. question about the floor.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm just trying to sort of understand the is your is your question about why we use the floors that we do or Well okay. Um it, the questions regarding about the types of floors we use and and uh, and whether we could uh, use different floors ultimately, um, the way the flooring works for the ballet is that first of all there 's what we call our sprung floor it 's a wooden sprung floor that is installed to allow um, uh, to help with the impact of the jumping and then uh, on top of that floor is what we call our lino or or the Marley, as it's referred to, which comes in various colors, which we all own. Like, we own all our different color floors. And depending on the nature of the ballet uh, and the choreographer, uh, we choose different colors to support the nature of the ballet. So some ballets are done on a black floor, some are done on a white floor. And And those floors are designed specifically for the dancers to dance on. The nature of the material is to is to help them with the especially the ladies with their point shoes, because of the nature of how a point shoe is made, so the floor acts as it, as, a, as a surface that helps them allow that allows them to dance on it safely. Those floors come in different colors, so the the choice of the floor ultimately results in the design of the production, and so either it 's black or it 's white or it 's blue or it 's gray. We tend to uh, use black or gray for most of our productions. Um, If we were to use different floors for every production, our intermissions would become very challenging because we'd have to spend time replacing the floor for every production. So I hope that answers your question.
0: I know there is a design element to the floor occasionally. Sometimes, Um,
1: sometimes in Patrisco we use a floor cloth. So it's actually a cloth floor that's laid. And once again, it's, it's a mottled gray and it's, it, it goes with the design of Petrushka. So um, sometimes the floor choice and color is really dictated by the production design.
0: I'm, I'm thinking in the ballet Romeo and Juliet in the ballroom scene yeah, in that's our a, production. That's another, it's literally a parquet. It's a,
1: yeah, it's like a parquet checkered marble. floor. Yeah, marble floor. Yeah. Once again, that is based on the nature of the design.
0: I wish we had time to keep going. Um, we have run out. Okay, she's just looking desperate. <laughs> this last question.
1: does SFB use a curtain page like the opera does? Is that what your question is? Uh, There are times where we do a curtain page. Depends on the name. You'd you'd probably see curtain pages uh, more so in full-length ballets where there are characters uh, who will get those special bows. You you tend not to see them in our contemporary works because the contemporary works tend to be more of a a unified collaboration of the the company, whereas in the full-lengths, there's... There are your lead characters, so they tend to get the, um, the the curtain calls and the bows. And SFB, she's
0: talking about a real page, a real page, like, like a, a an, an...
1: oh, the the crew would be pulling the curtain back. Yeah, it's just the the crew the crew they're not they're not plain and ordinary i'll tell you that right now <laughs> they are definitely not playing in ordinary <laughs> but they are responsible for that stuff
0: yeah. well for those of you who might have come in and and uh, didn't read the program uh, this has been a wonderful conversation with the san francisco ballets technical director christopher dennis we want to welcome you to san francisco
1: thank you thank you
0: and thank you all